0: Amen. Please be seated. If you have your copy of the scripture, would you turn, take it out and turn with me to uh, the gospel according to John and the 15th chapter. As we begin John chapter 15 uh, this morning, we might look back on chapter 14 and compare uh, the themes in chapter 14 with those in chapter 15. Uh, many, uh, many have noted that in chapter 14, there's a great deal of focus and emphasis upon the comfort the Lord Jesus Christ gives to his disciples to his church uh, after his departure many statements many promises that assure us and of course initially assured those 11 faithful disciples in the absence the physical absence of the Lord Jesus Christ that he remains theirs so the focus in chapter 14 is on strengthening the disciples for the future future life in his kingdom. And there is uh, some talk of duty, of course. We have considered that the consequence of love for Christ is obedience. And so there is some talk of duty in chapter 14. But the overwhelming focus is on the comfort that belongs to the people of God. Well, now in chapter 15, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, somewhat changes his emphasis to uh, consider the duty of his people. And so in as much as chapter 14 concerns our spiritual comfort, in chapter 15, the Lord Jesus Christ presses home his expectations for his disciples. And chief among his expectations for his disciples is that they abide in him, that his, that his people abide in him. And there are, of course, comforts along the way, and we'll consider some of them as we come across them. And so we'll, this will be the first of... Two or three sermons we'll preach on uh, verses 1 to 6 in chapter 15. And so this morning I want to consider uh, the true vine in verse 1. And then the removing of the faithless, uh, the fruitless, verses 2 and 6. And then to consider the flawed but fruitful in verses 2 through 5. Before we read God's word, let's pray, asking for his help and blessing. Almighty and everlasting God in heaven, we thank you that your Son came for us, where we were rebellious and fruitless, wandering, pursuing our own pleasures, seeking to be gratified in the things that we build or the things that we do or the things that we feel and yet finding no satisfaction but finding only emptiness and vanity oh we thank you that the lord jesus christ the finest among ten thousand has come and was born in our midst to be the true vine the true israel the true man of your right hand and the son of man endowed with wisdom and strength that he should ransom us from the power of sin, that he should suffer in himself the condemnation that we deserve and so provide for us a righteousness that satisfies your law and exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And we thank you for his Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out, that we may bear fruit to his glory. And so, O Holy Spirit, would you speak in the Scripture, nourish our souls, and conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen. The Gospel of John, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Amen The far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The Lord Jesus Christ reminds the disciples the Father is seeking spiritual fruit for his glory in his people. And since that is what the Father is seeking, the disciples surely would desire to provide such. And so what the Savior does here is provide them, give them uh, the key to bearing fruit. The key for his disciples to be fruitful and what is the key to fruitfulness it is abiding in him and if they abide in him as they abide in him because they abide in him they can be assured of fruitfulness because of christ's spiritual nourishment and the father's spiritual care so now let's look uh, this morning together at verse 1 as we sang from Psalm 80, perhaps you noticed the references to uh, the Old Covenant Church, the Hebrew church, as a vine and a vineyard. Uh, a vine was a metaphor, a symbolic for Israel throughout the Old Covenant Scriptures. And so the final uh, verse, though, of chapter 14 closes with Jesus saying what? Look there at the final verse, verse uh, 31. Rise, let us go from here not even the whole verse just the last sentence and so there's some discussion as to the location of the disciples during this section during this discourse right? jesus has said rise let us go from here and there's the reason there's some discussion is you know especially this time of year, you go visit family and and you've been there for a couple hours and what do you say well i, I guess we better be going and then about an hour later you you start to put on your coats and then about a half hour later, you start to get in the car. And then about 15 minutes later, you finally have the windows rolled up and you've got the brake lights on and you're backing up. So sometimes you say, let's go, and it takes a long time. So that's why there's some discussion. Are they still in the upper room? Or, as, as I think, are they on their way to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where they will spend the rest of the night? And I think that's the case because of where the conversation turns. As they go to the Mount of Olives, they pass by uh, the temple. And on the temple uh, was a large facade with a decorative vine above the entrance. And wealthy Jews, wanting to uh, make a name for themselves, would provide gifts of gold uh, for the temple to add branches to that large vine, or jewels to provide clusters of grapes. And you can uh, get a, a, a sense of the size of these jeweled clusters of grapes if you uh, read Josephus, or I'll just tell you what Josephus says. He says, Some of the grape clusters on the temple were as big, as tall as a man, which provides a range, of course. Are they, uh, are they a Beezy size grape cluster or a Jack size grape cluster? I, I don't know. But either way, these are massive jewels, massive vines. And you remember one of the previous occasions in which the disciples walked by uh, the temple, they admired its marvelous stones. And Jesus says, well, this is all going to fall down. And so the temple was rich with beauty and obviously a source of conversation for the disciples and here, even for the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruitful vine on the temple was a symbol of Israel, just as an eagle is symbolic for this country, or the unicorn and lion for Britain, or the maple leaf for Canada. And so, as we sang together this morning from Psalm 80, in which the prophet depicts the Hebrew church. As a vine brought out of Egypt by God, for which God cleared the the fertile ground, clearing off the nations and planting his vine in Canaan to make a fertile garden for his vine to yield much fruit for him. The psalmist illustrates both the labor of God for his people, that vine planted in Canaan, and the care of God over his people. Because God desires a rich harvest of fruit, For his glory from the Hebrew church. So Psalm 80, but then you fast forward to Isaiah chapter 5. There's a particularly scathing rebuke of faithless, fruitless Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 3, God says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its head. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. And so God, in rebuking the Hebrew church... Speaks to them as a vineyard, using that illustration to give them understanding. What more, O Israel, could I have done for you that I did not do for you to motivate you to, to gratitude and to love me? And yet you haven't produced the fruit, the obedience, the love, the satisfaction in me that I had hoped, that I had planned for, that I've given you every opportunity. Jeremiah is even... Even harsher, God in Jeremiah is even more severe, reminding Israel of his redemption of his people from harsh bondage to Pharaoh to serve him freely in the land of promise. Jeremiah chapter two, verse 20. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy, of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? This is God speaking of of the Hebrew church, our ancestors. And perhaps you, you recall the Lord Jesus Christ picks up on the metaphor of Israel as a vine in his parable of the vineyard in Mark 12, in which the tenants of the vineyard refused to do what? They refused to give the master of the vineyard rent. They refused to give him his fruit. And the religious leaders at that time, you remember their response to that parable? They understand that when this guy talks about a vineyard, he's talking about Israel. And when he's talking about the tenants of the vineyard, he's talking about us. And he's calling us rebels and squatters. You see, the religious leaders thought they had made Israel finally the fruitful vine God desires for his people. They had added ceremonies and rituals and traditions to the law of God to ensure that the minutia of the law was kept. They said, you know what, we're going to save Israel by, you know, God commands us to do this or not to do this. Well, we're going to say there's more, anything, anything that might lead up to sin. You're not going to be able to do it. And of course, the classic example being God's command not to, have, um, not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so the Hebrews said, well, you won't be able to boil a young goat in its mother's milk if you're never allowed to mix dairy and meat. So that's why you, you can't have dessert if you're in the Jewish state. Or you have to have soy ice cream, which is, well, having, having, having spent a week there, it would be better not to have ice cream. But you see, you see what they've done. They, they, they have said, we are going to be so faithful because we're adding to God's law. But in all that, what did they do? They forgot their first love. They lost the love of God. They forgot his grace and they became ingrates. They presumed my right standing with God is not because he has shown mercy and grace upon grace to me. It's because I don't have ice cream after dinner. Or I don't have dairy ice cream after dinner. I, have, I suffer through soy ice cream after dinner. That's how righteous I am. I deserve to be here. Now that's, a, that's one example. But you see how silly and absurd it is. How offensive it is to a righteous and holy God. Because you have soy ice cream? You think that you're entitled to my blessings? Of course, they didn't have soy ice cream, but that that line of thinking continues and persists among unbelieving Hebrews today. So the prophets and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the culmination of the prophets, make clear what about Israel, that she has failed in her mission, that she is a fruitless vine and unfaithful, worthy only of destruction. That's what the psalmist is lamenting, right? The vine has been, has been brought near to destruction. Its branches have been thrown into the fire. And the psalmist is pleading for the mercy of God. Did, did you notice as we sang, how he, how he pleads for God's mercy. The branch of your planting is burned and cut down, brought near to destruction because of your frown. And he's pr- pleading there in stanza five, for God to send a man, a man of your right hand with wisdom, endowed with wisdom and strength. A man, the son of man, who would do God's pleasure. And so, Onto this scene, into that context, comes the Lord Jesus Christ as the true vine, demonstrating to be the true Israel. And so in all these metaphors, the Lord Jesus Christ is conveying to those with the eyes of faith and ears of faith that He is the true Israel, just as He is the true vine. Because Israel had failed to fulfill God's purpose, failed to yield the desired fruit, To the glory of God, the Father sent his beloved Son to fulfill his designs and to succeed in every way where Israel failed. And you know, the the Gospels make no small point of that, do they? No small point that Christ is the new Israel, the true Israel. Because his people were powerless. Powerless. And Matthew and Luke, as they, as they begin the Lord's public ministry, what do they do? But they detail the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where? In the wilderness. Emphasizing Jesus endured the same temptations as the Hebrew church endured in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted with hunger. With lack of faith. Tempted to show a lack of faith. And just as Israel, while old Israel grumbled against Moses, just as Israel in the wilderness demanded signs, put the Lord, their God, to the test. What does our Savior do in response to these temptations from the accuser, from the evil one? He says, man does not live by bread alone by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When the accuser, when the adversary, when the devil comes and says, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and, and he will command his angels who have charge over you not to let you dash your foot against a stone, what does he say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel grumbled about food. Israel tested God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son who has been called out of Egypt, is satisfied and sustained by the word of God, does not put his, the Lord his God to the test, and does not bow down to any other God, as Israel did at Baal of Peor. And so John's gospel, not, so that's Matthew and Luke. Now, now John's gospel has been building up to this point. To so this conversation, I think there's an argument to be made that, that John has been building up to this very point all, all, all of his gospel. John has shown, remember in, in John chapter 2, he's shown that, that Jesus supersedes the temple. Even, even in John uh, chapter 1, when, when, uh, when Jesus calls Nathaniel, and he, and he, and he tells him, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That Jesus is the house of God, Bethel, house of God. That Jesus in John chapter 2 is the temple, the true temple. In John chapter 6, Jesus is greater than Moses, right? Moses gave you bread in the wilderness, but I give you the bread of heaven. And in John chapter 7, that Jesus supersedes. Jesus is the culmination of every feast of the Old Testament. But right? if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will cause rivers of living water to flow out of him. And you remember that vision in the prophet Ezekiel, the closing vision in the prophecy of Ezekiel. As Ezekiel sees the new temple, a temple that has never been built according to the dimensions Ezekiel measured in those angelic measurements. A temple from the threshold flowing rivers of water that flow into the Dead Sea and make the Dead Sea teem with life, that turn the Dead Sea into the Everglades, as it were. And there, Jesus, in John chapter 7, promises that his people, the ones where he dwells, that his dwelling place, out of that will flow rivers of living water. And now here, Jesus proclaims, I am the true vine. Jesus becomes then the center of the people of God. The representative of all the people of God. The true Israel, the true vine. In contrast to all the false and failing Israel. Degenerate, faithless, fruitless Israel that will soon arrest, condemn, and crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. Here comes Jesus, the faithful, the fruitful one. Would you turn now to to Psalm 80? In Psalm 80, as we sang that paraphrase of it, we, we consider the hope of God's people for a man to come and restore what Israel had lost by their faithlessness. They recognize, the psalmist recognizes, we have no hope except that God would intervene. Psalm 80, verse 17, but let... Your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And here comes the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of man, whom God has raised up to give life to his people, to restore the people of God, to enable God's blessings to shine on his people and save his people from all their sins by fulfilling all the Father's designs in himself and yielding the rich and good fruit of obedience the Father desires. As so the Lord Jesus Christ is the true vine, That is why he was born. He was born to succeed and obey where Israel had failed and rebelled. To be the perfect, sinless Israel. The son of God. The true vine. Well now let's look at in the second place at the the very end of verse 1 and into verse 2 and verse 6. If there's a true vine... What does that mean by necessary implication? And I don't I don't introduce myself as the true Ryan Beasy. And I suppose there is technically another one up in Wisconsin, but you don't know him. I don't know him. I've never met him. Because there, there's no one, there's no one posing as Ryan Beasy. I'm the only one. But the Lord Jesus Christ introduces Himself as what? The true vine. You see, he, consider His Father's work now with me. The, the Lord Jesus Christ can hardly talk of Himself without soon considering the work of His Father. You know, Father and Son are always of a single uh, single purpose, aren't they? Always working together. They can be distinguished in, in what they do, right? In the economy of the Trinity, the work of the Trinity, they can be distinguished but never separated. Father and Son always working together. And I read on the interwebs how much work is involved in cultivating a fruitful vine. This father is the vine dresser. You know, vines are not at all like tomatoes or cucumbers, you know, with, with tomatoes, you, you go to the, to the nursery and you, and you buy a, a tomato plant for, for 10 bucks. And um, in the spring, you, you plant it and you, you fertilize it and you weed it and you chase away the birds and the deer. And, and, and then come summer or early fall, you have this bumper crop of three or four dollars worth of tomatoes. <laughs> but you, you're, your labor is rewarded after a few months. Now, you may have had a fiscal deficit, but you you have the satisfaction of dirty fingernails. By contrast, vines, you plant and you work a vine for years, at least seven years on that vine before the first fruits, the first grapes are even edible. And then once a vine is matured and yielding fruit, it still requires a great deal of labor to ensure it will continue fruitful. So here the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of fruitless branches, on an otherwise mature and fruitful vine. His father is watching over the vine to ensure fruitfulness. And the branches that bear no fruit are cut off. Remember Jesus' words earlier in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Jesus does not hide It's not embarrassed by the truth that those who do not receive him as savior and king, those who reject him will face judgment and hellfire. Verse six, he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And so Jesus warns here, there will be those who are in some way associated with him, but who bear no fruit. Who give little or no indication of being a believer? They are cut off and thrown into the fire, not good for anything. They bring no glory to the Father, and so God will glorify them in his judgment of condemnation. But that, of course, raises an important question, doesn't it? In what sense are these branches in Christ? This statement by the Lord Jesus Christ is troubling for a number of reasons. Jesus is speaking of our duty to bear fruit and to abide in him, which often leads to the question, well, am I, am I abiding well enough? Am I bearing fruit well enough to be saved? And we'll consider that matter perhaps at length at a later date, but, but the short answer is no. Now, of course you're not bearing enough fruit to be saved. Right? How do we begin our time together this morning? But with a confession of sin. Confessing we are not living up to our obligations as the people of God. So of course you're not bearing enough fruit to be saved. Don't be ridiculous. Because you're not saved on account of your fruitfulness. You are saved on account of of Christ's fruitfulness. I am the true vine, he says. You're saved on account of Christ's fruitfulness, his righteousness given by grace and received by faith alone as he is offered in the gospel. And so our, our focus today, though Jesus says these branches are in him, but they bear no fruit they're not pruned by the Father, but are cut off and thrown into the fire and burned. You know, that would, you would think that would be obvious, right? Thrown into the fire and burned. It's like that, uh, that, that poor woman, Sam, uh, Samson's mother. She's barren and without child. You know, the first kind of presumes the first. But, but God there, uh, his name is wonderful, kind of emphasizes it, doesn't he? <laughs> barren. And without child. So here, there's an emphasis on what? On they're thrown into the fire and not singed, burned. There's a seriousness, a weightiness, a call to, to consider what, it, what happens to those who do not abide in Christ. But that, that leads us to a reasonable question. Is Jesus allowing for the possibility that, that someone who has been saved... Can lose his or her salvation. Have Presbyterians been wrong all all of these years. In our insistence on particular redemption and the perseverance of the saints. Did the Westminster Assembly get it wrong all those years ago? Did the Apostle Paul get it wrong when he says those whom he foreknew he also glorified? No. Of course not. John has said in his own gospel. John six thirty seven. all the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me and the will of him who sent me is this, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Or John 7, John ten twenty seven. he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And So Jesus is not saying here, not saying at all that there is some way that those who come to salvation in him, who are truly in him, he's not saying at all that such a one could lose his or her salvation because salvation is begun by God and finished by God in the lives of his people. But what our Lord is Saying very clearly here, and which is consistent with the, wider, with the wider testimony of Scripture. What the Lord is saying here is there are always going to be people who are near to Christ. Who are near to the things of God. Who may appear interested in Christ and the things of God. Who may even come to have some visible connection with God. But who actually have nothing from God. God in Christ, and nothing to do with him. One thinks, first of all, of Judas Iscariot. Judas was in Christ in some way, wasn't he? But he was not, as you might say, of Christ. Well, perhaps you think of Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will come and say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To this day, as, as always, there are people who give airs of spiritual interest, but who know nothing of Christ. They say, Lord, Lord, right? But they do not do the will of the Father. They produce no fruit. Some of them are are called nominal Christians. The South has many nominal Christians, even still. Christians in name only. Uh, They call themselves Christian, but they give no indication of actually following Christ. Uh, From time to time, when I pastored in Mississippi, I'd meet someone who at one time uh, had a connection to the church I served, but had not worshiped, had not worshiped there uh, for some years. But they had those fond memories, a sentimental attachment to that congregation that I served, and they would refer to it as my church or our church. And I, I'd be confused. And you know, I've been pastor here for five years and I've never seen you at church. What do you mean, our church? And yet in their minds they had some connection to the people of Christ and to the visible church. They claim to have a connection to the congregation when it's convenient. But they didn't live that way. They claimed to be connected to Christ's people. But they didn't live that way. And so Jesus says there will be branches broken off and thrown into the fire. But it's not always what we call nominal Christians. Sometimes it's people who appear to be very committed to the church, who are very religious, but they still lack good fruit. They never embraced Christ by faith, and their religion was all for their own glory. Just as in the vine metaphor, there are branches that appear to be joined but have no fruit. So, pe- so too people appear to be members of Christ outwardly, but have shown no fruit. Bishop Ryle calls them loud talkers about religion but who have no grace in their hearts. Don't we Don't we see loud talkers about religion on television but who have no grace in their hearts? They may convey a sense of concern about Christ and his people. Maybe even a particular church. But such concern is about maintaining their position and control, and stability, and appearance, and traditions, but not about bearing fruit for the glory of God. So true branches will always bear fruit. True branches will always bear fruit. They're always yielding fruit, but fruitless branches and false branches never do and never did. So they must be taken away, and no matter how close they are to the fruitful branches, the fruitless branches will be removed. Rick Phillips, a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, tells of an interaction he had with a woman in the congregation he had served. He wrote, I met with a woman, a longtime church member, wife of an elder, he says, who was nonetheless worldly in her speech and conduct. And I asked her how she was doing, and she answered, as was her custom, I am mean. He said, I pointed out to her, he said, uh, that orneriness is not among the fruit of the Spirit. And she said, well, read me that list and see if I have any of those qualities, Phillips writes. And so he read uh, the list. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he said, and I asked her, which of those do you see in yourself? And he tells us, she replied, I see none of them in myself. And he goes on to emphasize how uh, the woman uh, indicated by her own words the very serious possibility that she is not truly joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he began to discuss with her her urgent need to turn to Christ in repentance and faith, trusting in his blood for forgiveness and newness of life. And he concludes By saying, taking offense at my reply, the woman demanded we change the subject. This was an elder's wife, Rick Phillips tells us. A member of the church, and yet she saw no need to talk about repentance, faith, and new obedience. About being renewed by the transforming of her mind. She had no use for being born again from above. After all, she's an elder's wife. What what more could you ask of her? And yet there are people who have what the world might consider great spiritual credentials. But fruit for God's glory is utterly lacking in their lives. And they show ultimately that they are not savingly, vitally, or spiritually joined to Christ. It's not spiritual credentials Christ seeks, the Father seeks The Father is seeking fruit for his glory, fruit that must come from being joined to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so we should consider by way of application, uh, simply because a person was baptized or part of a church in childhood, does not mean that she or he has a place in or is part of Christ if that person's life is not characterized by living for the glory of God, by faith and obedience to Christ's commands. As we'll see in weeks to come, those in Christ are necessarily joined to all his people. And that means joining with and participating faithfully in the life, the worship and work of the church and the ministry of a local congregation. We'll look later at this. uh, We'll look further at this later. But a vine must bear fruit, isn't it? If a vine isn't bearing fruit, it's just ivy. And ivy might be pretty, but ultimately is destructive. And so the true vine, the removal of the fruitless, and now nurturing the flawed but fruitful. Verses 2 to 5. Here's the comfort the Father himself does the difficult and often painful work of pruning the branches. He doesn't leave that work to another, but he himself works and watches and protects the fruitful branches so that all the fruitful branches will bear more fruit. This is what we read from earlier this morning. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is what is the fruit that is sought? What is the good fruit the father seeks? Well, fruit begins with faith and repentance toward God in Christ. That is the first work of the Holy Spirit in a person, enabling him or her to embrace Christ as he is offered in the gospel. But as we know, faith in Christ is not the end of spiritual growth. Our life in Christ does not end with faith and repentance. Faith and repentance always leads to greater and greater Christ-likeness, greater and greater faith, greater and greater repentance the fruit in mind includes what paul lists in galatians 5 or that list in 2 peter 1 5 and following which include faith virtue self-control steadfastness godliness some have argued the fruit in view is winning others to christ that's certainly part of it but the fruit involved in view is everything about a christian character Everything that results from a vital union with Christ. Christian service, Christian character doesn't come naturally. Left alone, we will not produce any fruit, anything good, but we must always be drawing life from Christ. The the sweet spiritual sap that flows from the vine as his spirit nourishes his people. The local church and the preaching and teaching of the word are essential to this. And we'll consider more of that in weeks to come. The Word of God is part of the Father's pruning. But there's more to the Father's pruning than the Word of God. God's providence is also part of His pruning, isn't it? Well, what is pruning? The pruning we have in view is not when you're in the bath too long, pruning is when you're clipping things. It sounds painful. In fact, I read that with vine, sometimes you have to trim it back, prune 90% of the new growth each year to ensure its fruitfulness for subsequent harvest. The Father trims the branches. Did you notice this? He trims the branches so they are more fruitful. Because if they are in Christ, they are bearing fruit. This should encourage us in seasons of hardship, assault, Trial, difficulty, sickness, disappointment, uncertainty, anxiety. This should encourage us to rest in the Father's care and the Father's pruning. No fruit-bearing branch is exempt from the pruning of the Father. From the trimming of the Father. From the cutting of the Father. His loving purpose is to make his people more fruitful, more mature, and more godly to his glory. The Father prunes and cuts away anything which does not promote our spiritual good, even if it's otherwise good. The Father lovingly strips away our bad habits and prayerlessness, sometimes by giving us things to pray about. The gracious Father strips away relationships that hinder our faith. How does the Father prune us? should make clear, in case you think I'm talking about the bath again. No, I'm talking about what you do in horticulture. How does the Father prune us? Well, as we said, one way is, is by the Word, which God willing we'll consider in coming weeks. But another way is that sovereign, providential arranging of events to increase our graces, to strengthen our faith. And, and what I mean is Trials trials. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice that for now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or James 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, My brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, you know, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so we should see by way of application that this gives us insights into how to respond to hard providences. We ought to, with trust, seek to grow in them more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Trials teach us to hold fast to our Savior in the midst of storms, that we might not be tossed by the winds, but stand firm in the strength of his great might and in the certainty of his promises. Little do we often realize or consider the hardships of this life, the losses, temptations, and even the reproofs of life are all designed by God to make us more fruitful, more ready and able to serve for his glory. God prunes and even disciplines as a father. Because he loves his children and wants his children, the branches of Christ, to glorify him. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My sons do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is only God's children whom he disciplines, whom he prunes, Likewise, it is, it is only the faithful branches that are subject to this loving work of the Father. All Christ's people bear fruit. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ teaches his people of our duty in this life, even as in his absence, he still gives great comfort. All God's people bear fruit. And that fruit is not the product of their own strength, our own spiritual nature, but it is the result of Christ's Spirit working in us, providing life to us as a branch provides life to a vine. We seek to bear fruit. We seek to grow in holiness. We seek to fight sin by drawing strength and living in him. For all who are living in Christ, you will bear fruit. Your life will be marked by greater godliness, greater desire for godliness, greater knowledge of God, greater desire for knowledge of God, greater love for God, greater desire to love God, and greater desire to love the people of God. Because his life and his spirit flow through you. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you care for us. Please comfort us in your care and make us strong in your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.